Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and it's going to be quite the show today. We're interviewing Dr. Gary Habermas again. You probably heard our first interview last week. Dr. Habermas is a world-renowned expert on the reliability of the New Testament documents, and he is the authority on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. He is the Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He's authored 36 books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality, Did the Resurrection Happen? A Conversation with Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History, Resurrected, an Atheist and Theist Dialogue, Why is God Ignoring Me, What to Do When It Feels Like He's Giving You the Silent Treatment, What's Good About Feeling Bad, Finding Purpose in a Path Through Your Pain, The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God, Resurrected, Tangible Evidence that Jesus Rose from the Dead, and Dealing with Doubt. He has also been quoted in many other books and is known around the world as the expert on the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Last week, we talked about a lot of the evidences for the resurrection. We talked about historical evidences. We talked about alternative theories. We talked about some of the critics like Bart Ehrman and some of the answers to their criticisms. We talked about how different embarrassing details in the gospel narratives actually lend credibility to the story. We talked about so-called divergent accounts and how they also lend credibility to the story. And we talked about other things as well concerning the resurrection. The bottom line is the resurrection is a fact of history. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, as history confirms he has, we too can have hope that his offer of eternal life for all those that trust in him is a valid offer. And we can have hope that if we've taken that step and put our trust in him, we will experience, like he promises in John 6:40, that life everlasting for everyone who believes in him. If you weren't able to listen to the show last week, I would encourage you to go to eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. You'll find that show archived there. Today, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. Instead of talking about evidences for the resurrection like we talked about last week, we're going to go into some other topics that Dr. Habermas is an expert in as well. I'm sure it's going to be a great show, and I'm excited that you're listening. Anyway, we're back with Dr. Habermas for a second week. Welcome back to The God Solution, Dr. Habermas. Thanks for joining us for round two. Thank you, Nate. Glad to be on with you today. So we know of a professor here at this school that used to teach classes on the historical Jesus in the New Testament, and he admitted to one of our students that he lies in class to see if students are doing their homework. There are many university professors just like him, along with the Gnostic Gospels and books and movies like the Da Vinci Code, that all try to paint a very different picture of the historical Jesus. Can you tell us briefly who the real Jesus is in history? If you're asking me for my sources, how I would get there, again, I would do this common thing. I would do things that we hold in common, and then I would make it clear to the guy that I have a lot of other things about him that they probably wouldn't share with me. I have, In other words, I don't only hold this common material, but the way I would get there would be from Paul and the epistles. I would work backwards to the Gospels. I would draw some things from the book of Acts, because Acts is starting to look really good right now. Uh, by the way, a fellow named Craig Keener, a good friend, is coming out with a huge, huge commentary in Acts, and he's going to be having, I've heard the number, 100,000 
parallels to classical literature, backups. There's a lot of stuff out there like wow. that in Acts. So those are the sources I would use to build Jesus. I also, on my website, GaryHabermas.com, under the Books tab in the left-hand side, I have an essay on what we could know about Jesus outside the New Testament. I would also use a dozen and a half secular, non-Christian sources to build the life of Jesus. When you mention that, I know that Tiberius Caesar, there are, what, nine or ten references to Tiberius Caesar from the first century? And yeah. there are more references to Jesus, correct? More references to Jesus. And the really interesting thing is that you could argue that there are four major references to Tiberius. And, you know, we often talk about four major references to Jesus. Now, I would stick Paul in there, too, so that would be four Gospels and Paul. That would be five. But four major sources for Tiberius. Except for the first one for Tiberius, which is contemporary with him, and like I said, these First Corinthians 15, 3 and following may be contemporary with Jesus. It could go all the way back to 30 AD. But the other three major sources for Tiberius are Tacitus, Suetonius, and Dio Cassius. The earliest of those is 80 years after Tiberius. The earliest wow. is plus 80. And the latest, Dio Cassius, is plus 180. I always found that amazing because people will say to you, the Gospel of John, it's 95 A.D. That's 65 years after Jesus. But in the ancient world, 65 years is not a big gap at all. Why don't we balk at the fact that, example you use, Tiberius, all of our sources, all the major sources except one, in fact, the one that's contemporary with him is the least useful. Mm -hmm. The other three, Tiberius, Suetonius, Diocassius, all three of them are 80 to 180 years later. In other words, the earliest source of the three main ones, the earliest source is 15 years later on Tiberius than John is on Jesus. I just note some prejudice here, and they'll go, well, yeah, but Tacitus is writing history, and John's writing propaganda. Well, you know, that changed about 20 years ago. In the early 90s, uh, a fellow named Richard Burridge, University of London classic scholar, he made an argument that has been taken by most New Testament scholars today that the Gospels are the same genre as Greco-Roman biographies. So when someone says, yeah, but Tacitus is writing history, these guys are writing rubbish, not according to the latest view. These are normal Greco-Roman documents written the way Greco-Roman stories. about. You go, well, yeah, but they reported miracles about Jesus. Guess what? Tacitus reports miracles of the Roman emperors. So all you can do when someone reports miracles, whether it's a Roman emperor or Jesus, all you can do is what we're doing in this interview. All you can do is subject it to criticism and say, what are your evidences for that? And now we can give evidences for Jesus' miracles. Guess what? I can't give arguments for the Roman emperor's miracles. But anyway, my point being, don't tell me Tacitus is special and the Gospels aren't. They really are very similar genre-wise, very similar documents. Now, talking about evidence and arguments, I wanted to ask you a few questions about Antony Flew. You debated sure. the renowned atheist Antony Flew numerous times concerning the issues that we're discussing today, and an independent panel actually judged you the winner of those debates. What was that experience like? Well, that time we had the panel, that was, I believe that was 1985, and it was here in the campus at my school, Liberty University, and it was probably the height of my career at that point. I grew up, I went to school, and when I was going through these skeptical sort of moves that I explained earlier to you, Anthony Flew, you could argue, was the biggest name naturalist. We've used that word naturalism. Anthony Flew was probably the chief naturalist out there. The Bargermans of the world 
were going to quote somebody who would be their authority, Anthony Flew would be as likely as anybody to be quoted. He probably wrote more things defending atheism and naturalism than anybody who's ever lived. So here I am studying this guy who could say over on that side of the fence would be your hero, you know, if you were a naturalist. And here in 1985, I met him in early 1985, and just a few months later, he and I were debating, and Harper and Rowe published the debate. He and I got to be very good friends. We had two more debates on the resurrection, and uh, later he became a theist of sorts, or a deist. He came to espouse the existence of God. So how did those debates impact his later rejection of atheism? You know, I really don't know, because he and I talked very regularly. We, we talked a lot, and as far as I know, you know, he's heard the gospel enough times, we just talk often, but he never really came to believe in the resurrection. So how that would affect what happened to him, it's hard to say. But after we debated our second time, it was about, oh, 2000, 2003, around in there, he said to me that he had no arguments for his viewpoint, that he did not have a, he didn't have an apologetic, let's say, for his viewpoint. So, and then he wrote me a long letter some months later, and told me where he thought the Christian position and theism in general was really strong. So I know he was thinking through things at that time, but he never came to believe the resurrection as far as I know, so I can't say that those arguments had any effect on him, but in general, I think he really did rethink, for sure, he came to really rethink the existence of God, because before he died, he believed in God. Yeah, and he wrote the book, There Is a God, How the World's yeah, fantastic. Most... Yeah, fantastic book. And there he tells you know where his pilgrimage came from and i interviewed him a few times there's a few there's a few interviews in print where mm -hmm. i ask him questions and he answers why he became a deist or a theist of sorts uh, he he affirmed basically virtually all the classical attributes of the classical god he didn't think god he had questions about god's omnibenevolence in other words mm -hmm. god's goodness because he had issues with the problem of evil but other than that he accepted that God was probably omnipotent, omniscient, you know, created the universe. As far as I know, he believed all of that. So if you're interested in looking into that book, it is called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. I find it interesting how the secular response to flu was that he had lost his mind. Rather yeah. than dealing with the evidence itself, they just brushed it off and said, ah, he lost his mind. But anyway, yeah, I've read some of those interviews, and we've actually quoted them on this show before. So thank you so well, much for doing those. Nate, I don't understand if some major Christian became an atheist, and that's happened before. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could give names. Well, Bart Ehrman. But, pardon me? Bart Ehrman was a Bart Ehrman is an agnostic yeah. who used to be a, an evangelical. Yeah. yeah. Am I threatened because Bart Ehrman, no. I mean, I'm sad it happened, but Bart Ehrman's changing doesn't make me question Christianity. I don't mm -hmm. understand that kind of move. So when Anthony Flew changed, I can't tell you, it shocked a lot of people. I used to talk to Tony regularly. I call him on the phone just to kind of shoot the breeze, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And he would tell me how he would get hate mail, hate calls from atheists, sort of like thanks for selling us out kind of comments. I don't know. I don't understand it, except that, like I said, the key might be that he wrote more pro-atheist, pro-naturalism material than probably anybody who ever lived. So maybe it's significant that the main guy went over. I, I don't understand it, but I know they struggled with it. And as far as them saying, oh, he lost his mind, I mean, ask the question, what can they say? If this mm -hmm. really, really bothered them, what else can they respond with?
And that's an ad hominem attack, which is absolutely absurd. Another example of an atheist that turned to Christ is C.S. Lewis. And I remember reading, I don't remember exactly in which book, and I don't have the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of, when I was an atheist, there were many nights where I laid awake doubting the whole thing. And as a Christian, there are very few nights where I lie awake doubting the whole thing. And so I did want to ask you a few questions about doubt, and we mentioned that at the beginning of this interview. Sure. You wrote the Thomas... That comment, by the way, is in your Christianity. Is it? Okay, great. You wrote the Thomas Factor, using your doubts to draw closer to God. So... Is it possible to have faith and still have some unresolved doubts? Unquestionably. In fact, you know, you could say it doesn't preach, quote-unquote, to to take passages of Scripture where they're doubting Christians. Mm-hmm. So sadly, because we don't preach on it, a lot of Christians grow up thinking we can't doubt. I've never heard that before. Abraham didn't doubt. Paul didn't doubt. David didn't doubt. And my answer is, Read Scripture. Mm-hmm. There are dozens and dozens of verses. The name Job is synonymous with suffering and doubt. You go, oh yeah, well there's there's Job. Who else do you know? Well, besides Job, probably the second guy who had the most run-ins with his faith is is probably going to be a tie between David and Abraham. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what's Abraham's nickname? You know, he's the man of faith. Okay, how can the man of faith have these half-dozen run-ins with his faith. Just read it. They're in the book of Genesis. Yeah. Why half-dozen? What about David? Read the Psalms, and what about the Psalms that just don't ask God questions? Why are you letting this happen? Read the Psalms. There are fewer, but read the Psalms where the psalmist, not just David, but where the psalmist actually blames God with favoring the the wicked and not caring if believers die. I mean, where do they get that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Why is it there? How about John the Baptist when he sent his two... Yeah disciples to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? I mean, John the Baptist saying, should we look for somebody else? Mm -hmm. So there's passages all through the Bible. That's not an excuse to doubt, and doubt can be a serious thing. And uh, Jude tells us, uh, near the end of his one chapter epistle, Jude tells us to, uh, so does James, they tell us to kind of gird up these people and to come to their aid and to help them. And and I think we should watch for people. And I'm not saying doubt is nothing. Doubt can be very serious. You know, your child, your grandchild, your best friend, somebody at church, you kind of watch them and make sure they're not going too far. And when when they start saying saying scary things, whatever the definition of scary things is, you kind of come alongside them. So I'm not saying it's nothing. It can be very serious. But the fact that you can be a believer and have doubt, it's all through Scripture. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, or KDUR.org online. Thank you so much for listening. We're interviewing Dr. Habermas for the second week in a row, and I'm sure you're going to be interested in what he has to say. Thanks for listening. Okay, so what advice would you have for someone that's listening today, either believer or not, who has doubt and who maybe wants to embrace Christ, but they feel like this doubt is keeping them from that, What advice would you give them about dealing with their doubt and, as you put it, using your doubt to grow closer to God? Okay, so you're talking about believers who are doubting, right? Maybe a believer that's doubting, or even maybe somebody that wants to believe but feels like they can't take that step until they've dealt with all their doubt or until their doubt has been erased. Okay, now for the unbeliever, if they're going to be asking specific questions, the kind of things you've been asking in this broadcast, if they say, well, what about Bart Ehrman? What about naturalism? What about... You answer their questions. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you this, for both believers and unbelievers, surveys show that by far the majority of doubt 
people don't want to admit this, especially males, mm -hmm. but the majority of doubt is not factual or philosophical. It's emotional. Most people who have doubt issues have them because they had a crisis in their life. Somebody died. There was a breakup. They thought their life was going to go this way, but it took a right turn. There are those things in their lives. In fact, I just read an article, Nate. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. But one psychological survey, it's a secular journal, this is reported in, that among atheists, atheists have some of the highest levels of anger towards God. Now, that's kind of interesting. How could you have anger toward a being who doesn't exist? Exactly. So why do they? Because they've gone through issues. And that mm -hmm. explains a lot of this tenacity. When you say something to them and it looks like they're mad and they're going to bite your nose off or something, I mean, that's because they're going through emotional things. So I'd say for Christians and non-Christians, Listen to what you're saying. Determine why you're saying it. Are you saying it because you can't answer this question, or are you saying it because you've been hurt? If it's because you've been hurt, then look after some of the books like uh, Telling Yourself the Truth by William Backus and Marie Chappie, and read a book that tells you how to deal with emotional issues. Because if it's an emotional issue, you're not going to solve the problem. For C.S. Lewis, it was because his mother died when he was a little boy, and God refused to answer his prayer and raise her mm -hmm. from the dead. That's why he got angry. If that's what it is, don't keep telling people it's because I can't answer this certain question. Answering that question isn't going to get you over the hurt of your mom dying. What you need is a good book that tells you how to deal with your emotions. So I think for most people, they need to deal with their emotions. Now, you mentioned two of my books, two of my three books on doubt. One of them is called The Thomas Factor, and it deals chiefly with emotional doubt. It tells you how to get in touch with, how to correct some of these things you're saying to yourself about your emotions. I mentioned my website, Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, GaryHabermas.com. On the upper left-hand side under the Books tab, those two doubt books, are my two doubt books, two of the three, are out of print. They are there on my website free. So people can take them, download them, copy a chapter. But the one I'm talking about is the book there on the website, GaryHabermas.com. It's called The Thomas Factor. And it mostly deals with emotions, not answering, you know, how do we know the gospel's true? It answers, how come I get upset every time I think about God? A lot of those same atheists that have this emotional response to God, this anger with God, would claim, right. no, I'm believing what I believe solely because of the facts. But then they'll go on to say, whether it's Ehrman or Dawkins, a lot of these people will say, the reason I'm an atheist is because of the problem of pain. I know you've written on that topic as well. You've written on about everything. Could you give me just a couple sentences on how a good, loving, all-powerful God could allow pain and evil and suffering in this world? Yeah, there's a general philosophical answer to pain that is used by far more than Christians. This isn't like Christian special pleading. Almost any philosopher is going to tell you this, even if they're a Buddhist philosopher or if they're going to, you know, John Hick is going to give you this kind of answer. The general philosophical answer is that God is justified in allowing pain and suffering if, by allowing pain and suffering, he gains something that's at least as great or greater than what is hurt by the suffering. In other words, if there's a greater good or stopping a greater evil, surgery isn't neat, isn't very good. But if surgery corrects a bad problem, surgery is worth it. Well, God can make that same sort of decision. And you can say, well, okay, 
tell me something. What good out there makes up for, let's say, cancer? What mm-hmm. good should make up for cancer? Well, I'd say here's a couple examples. Religious, I'll give you one religious one and one non-religious one. Religiously, if your pain leads you to explore religious questions, like a lot of these skeptics want to claim, if the suffering leads you to ask those questions, maybe you end up with God. Mm-hmm. So the answer to your suffering is, like, in my life, why should I complain? It led me to the God of the universe. So that would be a great good that would mm-hmm. come out of it. Okay, what about a secular one? What's a secular gift that God gives us? And I would say it's free will. I'd say when God created us, he created us in his image. Whatever being in his image means, part of it, I believe, has to do with being free. Now, we're not totally free creatures. I can't fly. I can't swim underwater. But I can make decisions. I can take a steak at the dinner table tonight. I can make decisions. And the classical Christian view is that most suffering comes from the exercise of free will. But free will is not anything I would trade. If you said to me, well, let me take your free will, and there'll never again be a car accident. Would I trade it? Absolutely not. i got some place I want to go tonight. I, you know, I'm not going to give up my free will. Yeah, I know I could be killed on the highway, but I'm willing to chance that. i got a big night coming up. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't trade our free will for that kind of stuff. But being free means a lot of things are going to be out of control. So those are two of the goods God gives back, the ability to investigate things and come to faith, find him, which involves eternity, the chance to find God for eternity. A secular example would be just being free, but there's payback for being free because some people are going to misuse their freedom. Okay, before you leave, what adjectives would you use to describe your faith when you think of all the evidence we've discussed in your journey up till this point? Boy, I don't know about adjectives. <laughs> That's a good one. I, you, you keep using the word awesome. I, you know, here, here's what I, here's what I conclusion I've come to when I study these things. No religion in the world can put on a sheet. No religion in the world can lift the sorts of evidences that Christianity has at its disposal. When you think just about topics we discussed today, how do I know the Gospels or Greco-Roman biographies? How do I know there's reasons to back up the Gospels? What about the writings of Paul? We have early eyewitness testimony for the death, burial, resurrection, deity of Christ. That's what we call the gospel, and eternal life depends on that. What about arguments like uh, different species of arguments? What about arguments for God or the afterlife or arguments like that? We just have a lot of things at our disposal, but God also gives us balm, B-A-L-M. God gives us balm for our suffering. There's answers in Christianity like the ones I talked about earlier that kind of calm our emotional issues. So I, I think you get the whole package in Christianity. If that's not awesome, I can't think of a better word. It's a belief system that has reasons but also calms us during those dark nights when we're really being torn up. It's been a blast, and we really appreciate all you've done for apologetics. And it's been great getting to know you a little bit over the phone. Hope we get to meet in person sometime. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for, not all interviews are created equal. Some of them are bad. Some of them say, well, you say in your book, and how do you tell somebody I don't (laughs) say that, I don't take that view, because somebody's not doing their homework. Your questions today were great. They were insightful. They set up some good things here. So thanks for a great interview. Thank you so much. Have a great day. It's been a phenomenal interview with Dr. Habermas. I would encourage you to look into some of his books. He is a prolific author, and you can't go wrong reading his stuff. I'll run through the list that we shared earlier. This is not a comprehensive list. These are just a few of his books, and you could look for these. 
Probably your best option would be to go to Amazon.com and type Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, into their search engine, and it'll pull up numerous books right there on the site that you can buy. Some of those books, again, are The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality, Did the Resurrection Happen? A Conversation with Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History, Resurrected, An Atheist and Theist Dialogue, Why is God Ignoring Me? What to Do When It Feels Like He's Giving You the Silent Treatment, What's Good About Feeling Bad? Finding Purpose and a Path Through Your Pain, The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God, Resurrected, Tangible Evidence that Jesus Rose from the Dead, and Dealing with Doubt. Again, look for Dr. Habermas on Amazon or at any other bookstore and buy any of those books that sound interesting to you. You can also find out more about Dr. Habermas and download some of his books for free at GaryHabermas.com. That's spelled G-A-R-Y-H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S.com. GaryHabermas.com. As you consider everything that you just heard, all the different evidence for Christ, for his resurrection, the fact that even with doubt we can put our faith in Christ, allowing him to deal with that doubt over time, and as Dr. Habermas puts it, using those doubts to draw closer to him, having heard that, I want to encourage you to come to Christ today. He desires to be in a relationship with you. He stands with arms outstretched, waiting to begin a father-child relationship with you. The Bible tells us that God has loved you with an everlasting love. Before you were even created, God already loved you. He's loved you with an everlasting love. The Bible also tells us that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. Just think for a moment about the sand that covers every beach of every shore across this entire planet. And his thoughts for you outnumber all those particles of sand. He loves you passionately and intensely and personally. And he desires a personal relationship with you. The Bible tells us there's a problem, though. And that problem is that we're sinful. And sin always separates friends. If I were to punch you in the nose today, you probably wouldn't want to spend time with me tomorrow. See, selfishness and sin separate friendships. And our selfishness has separated us from God. My imperfection has kept me from the perfect God that created me. If that's where it ended, that'd be terrible news. But fortunately... That's not where it ends. Jesus Christ, perfect God in a human body, lived on this earth. He paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross so that anyone who puts their trust in him would be guaranteed eternal life, not because of my performance, but because of his, because of what he did at the cross. If that's you today, if you've never taken that step to put your trust in Christ, I want to ask you and invite you to take that step today. To simply stop whatever you're doing now and say, Jesus, I trust you. Even if every doubt isn't resolved, I know that I need a Savior. And I'm asking you to come into my life and to forgive my sins and to make me the person that you want me to be. If you pray that and you mean that from your heart, Romans 10 verse 9 tells us that you will be saved. That you will be brought and adopted into Christ's family. I hope that you'll make that decision this morning. If you already are a believer, I want to encourage you that the evidence that we've been exploring the last few weeks and the evidence that we're going to keep exploring on this show should give you tremendous confidence in your faith. 
You're not taking a leap of faith, but rather you're walking with confident steps of faith. I'm so glad you're listening. I also want to invite you to church this morning. A great church to visit this morning would be First Baptist. They meet on the southeast corner of East 3rd Avenue and 11th Street, and they meet this morning at 1045. I hope you'll make it to First Baptist today. Well, it's been phenomenal. Having the opportunity to interview Dr. Habermas for the last two weeks has been a tremendous joy to me. I've enjoyed every moment of the interviews the last couple weeks with Dr. Habermas. And if you want to check out these interviews in the future or any of our other shows, you can get all of our shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. While you're there, please leave some comments and let us know what you think about the show. We'd love to hear what you think. And if you have any questions that you'd like discussed on this show or any topics you'd like us to explore, let us know. We'd love to get to that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. It's been a great morning, and we've had a lot of fun together. And I look forward to seeing you again next week on The God Solution. Have a great Sunday. Oh.